This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Big news, guys. Representation is here. We're so excited to finally share this with you. Our brand new merch, The Pronoun Tee, is out now. It's customizable to however you identify. They, them, she, her, or he, him, in either hot pink or silver. And because it's important to make everyone feel safe and accepted, your preference is highlighted among a list of everyone's pronouns, making sure that however you identify, everyone is visible. Go to gaynongay.shop to get yours. 10% goes to mermaids. Gaynongay.shop. A Gay and a Non-Gay is a podcast from James Barr and Dan Hudson. Two unlikely friends take on the world. So this is a London patient, a cure for HIV. Well, it's a question, so you've got to go up at the end. So it's a cure for HIV, question mark. But you don't say the question mark, you just go up. So it's a cure right. for HIV, because we don't know at this point whether there's a cure for HIV or not. That's what we're going to okay. find out now. So it's like an Aussie accent. So a cure for HIV. A cure for HIV. Why do all of our documentaries have to have a question mark at the beginning of them? From gay to non-gay, and now a cure for HIV. Yeah, you didn't get the hang of that one either, did you? Why can't we make it easy for ourselves and just call it... I mean, I don't know what we would call it, to be fair. Well, exactly. So here we go. Welcome to a gay... and a non-gay. Welcome to The London Patient, A Cure for HIV. This is the first of two episodes brought to you thanks to funding from the British Podcast Awards Fund and the Wellcome Trust. So we started talking about making some special episodes about the HIV virus last year. It was a really different world then. Right now, it's May 2020. Obviously, there's a big virus doing the rounds. So here's a podcast about another virus. The idea was to do a deep dive into where we're at right now with HIV and AIDS in 2020. And to find out about some of the amazing work being done by the medical community to finally find a cure for HIV and AIDS. I'm gay and HIV negative and I grew up terrified of HIV. I was told that it was a death sentence and when I first came out to my mum, it was her second question. Are you going to catch HIV? And what was the first question? Are you sure? I mean, without getting <laughs> getting too far down that path, I don't think that's an unreasonable first assumption for someone to say really if talia said to me I, i'm pregnant I, my first question would be like are you sure <laughs> okay but it's not really the same thing is it it's like me saying oh are you straight and you going yeah me being like cool are you sure Sure, you sure mate. straight mate anyway so yeah for a lot of lgbt people who lived through the hiv and aids epidemic of the 80s and 90s or people like me who grew up in the hangover of it i think it's always felt like something that i deserved a punishment for being gay and at times i know that i've consciously put myself at risk of hiv infection because i felt like my life was worthless but you know we've come a long way from the 1980s and the 1990s and some amazing people have been working tirelessly to find effective treatments but is there a cure yet how close are we to a cure who's the London patient and now that coronavirus is doing the rounds can the story of HIV and AIDS offer the world any hope the London patient a cure for HIV so this whole thing started because we had an email from Aaron who's a listener of ours and Aaron is also a biomedical scientist at the Francis Crick Institute an enormous biomedical research centre in central London I have no idea what any of those words mean (laughs) what is biomedicine let's not get bogged down in that right now you don't know either 
Aaron invited us to a World AIDS Day event at the Francis Crick Institute. I went down there and I thought it was incredible. It was a full day of talks from researchers, clinicians and charity workers talking all about HIV and AIDS. If I'm completely honest, a lot of it went over my head, but I left feeling really inspired. I wanted to share some of the amazing work being done by the scientific community on this podcast. So coming up, I'm going to catch up with Professor John Freighter and find out just how close we are to finding a cure for HIV. First, though, I think we've got to start by briefly going back to the 1980s. The National Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta today released the results of a study which shows that the lifestyle of some male homosexuals has triggered an epidemic of a rare form of cancer. Nearly 3,000 cases of AIDS have already hit this city. Half those people have died. There is now a danger that has become a threat to us all. AIDS is now the leading cause of death among young people in this country. No one with AIDS has been cured. It is a deadly disease and there is no known cure. HIV and AIDS was originally called a rare form of cancer or GRID, gay-related immune deficiency. There was a lot of stigma about HIV, both in society and science. In the UK, Terry Higgins was one of the first people to die of an AIDS-related illness. He died aged 37 in July 1982. And in 1983 the Terence Higgins Trust was born. Let's chat to Sir Nick Partridge. Nick started at the Terence Higgins Trust in 1985, working in the post room, before working his way up to become chief executive from 1991 to 2013. And he told us what it was like back in the 80s at the start of the AIDS epidemic and how things began to change as medicine progressed. What HIV does is it destroys the immune system, and that means that people became open to a wide range of opportunistic infections. People living with AIDS at that time were fearful of losing their sight, losing their mind. Uh, People lost a huge amount of weight. It was very visible illness. As a society, we're quite rightly fearful of infectious disease. But because there were pre-existing taboos, taboos of dying young, of being gay, of having a history of injecting drug use, it was as though AIDS was your fault rather than the fault of a virus. There was a real difference in the response from the church, from parts of the uh, medical establishment, that uh, those living with HIV and at risk of HIV were not worthy of care. What did that look like you know, on the ground? How did that play out? In the very early days of AIDS in the mid-1980s, there were often instances of medical professionals uh, donning spacesuits in effect, such was the fear of transmission. There were stories of nurses refusing to care for people with AIDS. Remember, then it was a terminal disease. So you had, really for the first time, a lot of men in their 20s, 30s and 40s being severely ill in hospitals which were used to treating the elderly and children. And this came as a huge shock to the health service to begin with. Thankfully, most uh, doctors and nurses did begin to embrace AIDS and realise that it was a way in which they could change the health service, change the relationship between patients and doctors because uh, the key leading AIDS doctors at the time knew that they were learning 
learning most about the disease from those who were living with it. And it was that combination, those us uh, in the community and those early people living with HIV working closely with doctors and nurses to say, this is how we can improve services. This is how we can get people to live longer. This is how we can care for people uh, at home. Of course, all of the activism around demanding that both the government invest in AIDS research, that they pressure the pharmaceutical industry to begin to invest in research, meant that we began to see the development of uh, treatments, which eventually, after such a long time, so we got the first glimmer of effective treatment in 1996. And that's a long time after 1982. And so many people have become sick and died in between. That treatment in 1996 was protease inhibitor, which, when added to existing treatments, worked wonders. A protease inhibitor interfered with HIV's ability to make new viruses inside the CD4 cells, a type of cell that plays a very important role in our body's immune systems. This was life-changing. Within 18 months of protease inhibitors being added, so you had three classes of drugs working together, the number of deaths in the UK dropped by 80%. I mean, it was phenomenal and continues to be extraordinary. So I guess I'm pretty embarrassed to say this, Dan, but I don't think I actually know what HIV is. I know what it does and what it's done and how effective treatment can now be. I've also taken PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is medication that keeps HIV-negative people from becoming infected. But I don't really know what it is. Well, it's a virus. Yeah, but that's not really saying much, is it? Like, coronavirus is a virus, but I've seen so many infographics on how that enters your bloodstream, what it looks like, what it does to you. We're all kind of obsessed with coronavirus, but I don't think anyone's ever told me how HIV works. All I've been told is it's going to kill you. Well, listen, James, I headed to the University of Oxford to catch up with John Freighter. He's a professor of infectious diseases, and he's got two jobs. One is in a clinic looking after people who live with HIV and the other one is running a research group to try and find new treatments and hopefully one day find a cure for HIV. So I mean how far off are we from finding a cure? I mean that was my first question. I'd love to give you a good answer, an easy answer to that, but it's tricky. I mean, just last month, there was a paper published, which we were on, about curing someone in London, the London patient. And this is, this is a man who was cured of his HIV infection. And he's the second person on the planet to have been cured using this sort of stem cell therapy, where the kind of you have a stem cell transplant. So an incredibly complicated, potentially risky therapy, which can, in the right circumstances, lead to cure. But you're not going to cure 37 million people by doing that. So really, I guess the question you want to know is, you know, when is there going to be a cure available for everybody that is safe, that we can roll out across Africa and everywhere else? And that is still a long, long way away. Why is it that you can't cure HIV? So HIV is a virus. Viruses aren't alive. They're lumps of bad news wrapped up in protein. And what they do is when they can get into your body, they take over and they start using your body to do what they want to do. And with HIV, what it does is it once it can get into your body it hides in your cells and there's a special sort of cell and the cells are the tiny little bits that make up your body and there's a particular cell which is part of your immune system and that is called a cd4 cell it's just the cd4 is just the name of a molecule that scientists who weren't feeling very imaginative 
came up with. And it's something that's it's like a little marker, like a flag that is stuck on the surface of the cell. And HIV uses this little marker to get inside. And once it's inside the cell, it kind of takes over and it buries itself into your DNA. And it buries itself so deeply into your DNA that you can't tell it's there. And then it goes to sleep. So what happens is that cell with the buried HIV will stay in your body, you know, for the rest of your life, potentially. You don't know it's there. And at any point, that virus might decide to wake up and cause havoc. And so because of that, you have to stay on therapy for the whole of your life. But also because of that, the therapies that we've got don't kill the sleeping virus. So you have this, this problem that the, th the current drugs that people take on a day-to-day -day basis are absolutely brilliant and keep people well, but they don't kill the sleeping virus. And because they don't kill the sleeping virus, we can't currently cure HIV. So with the London patient and the Berlin patient, yeah. what happened there? These are two people who both had HIV, but they were unfortunate enough to get a sort of blood cancer as well, different sorts of blood cancer, but they both had a blood cancer. And the treatment for blood cancers at some point down the line is to have what's called a stem cell transplant and that is when you receive bone marrow cells from a, another donor from someone else who's kind enough to say hey you can have these and then they get infused into you and those healthy cells take over and they cure you of your blood cancer now one of the really weird things we know about the hiv epidemic is that there's a group of people who are immune and there's a lot of them up in scandinavia and up in that sort of north northern part of europe and they have this really interesting mutation in their immune cells and this is a mutation called the delta 32 mutation and if you have delta 32 and enough of it hiv can't get into your cells so you could be exposed loads but you will never catch hiv um, and there are a few of the people on the planet who have this mutation and some of them have donated to the stem cell bank for blood transfusion for um, stem cell transplantation and what what the two cases of the london and the berlin patient were is that the stem cell transplant they had was with these special Delta 32 cells. Right. So not only did the transplant cure the blood cancer, but it provided the body with cells that HIV couldn't infect. And that meant that these people developed a whole new immune system, which was immune to HIV, and that ended up with them being cured. So it's kind of complex and amazing at the same time, really. So let me get my head around this, Dan. The only two people who have been cured of HIV are the Berlin patient and the London patient. They both had cancer and both received a stem cell transplant to treat their cancer. That's basically a whole new immune system. But that immune system came from an HIV negative donor who had a crucial Delta 32 mutation, which made them naturally immune to HIV in the first place. Is, is that right? Yes, that's right. Got it in one. Wow, this is a lot to get my head around. Okay, well, let's go back to Oxford. So am I right in saying that today the only way that it, it's been cured or, or stopped is by using, uh, like creating a whole new immune system? Yeah. In, in yeah. So if we're going to go down that route of rebuilding your immune system in a way that it is resistant to HIV, at the moment, the only way you can do that is by finding someone who's kind enough to let you have their stem cells. The future is all about gene therapy. These new amazing, they're called gene editing techniques, where you can take, you can take the DNA in a cell and you can basically edit it 
like you would edit text. You can copy and cut and paste. Ready? Yep. And change <laughs> the DNA in a cell and then put that cell back in the body. So rather than saying to somebody, listen, you've got an amazing Delta 32 mutation. Can I have all your cells? What you do is you take someone who's got normal cells, you take them out, you gene edit them, you cut out the bit that you don't want them to be, to be there, and then you put them back in again, but now they're HIV resistant. And there's been a few cases of this in the cancer field and some just sort of coming our way possibly in the HIV field where this technique certainly looks in the laboratory to work, but to actually then take that through and turn it into a treatment for people is a different level. But, you know, I think it is very much on the horizon and it's a very exciting area to be working in. Wow, okay, so Kim Kardashian still can't get Twitter to give her an edit button, but someday soon we might actually be able to edit cells in our bodies. Basically, yeah. I don't think I've ever heard anyone make sense of anything the way he just did. When I was there, James, he also told me people living with HIV can actually sometimes have a longer life expectancy than people who aren't. There's been a few papers out there that have suggested that if, you, if you're living with HIV and you get on your therapy early, that your life expectancy might be longer than if you didn't have HIV. And that is because from your early 20s or whatever, you're seeing a doctor two or three times a year who checks your blood pressure, your diabetes risk and counsels you about smoking and lifestyle stuff. So you have a sort of health advisor from your early 20s onwards and it may well be that for some people you're going to pick pick up things potential high blood pressure or heart problems or, or diabetes risk much earlier or cholesterol much earlier than you would do otherwise and so there may be some sort of long term benefit for that. Wow. So in that idea HIV might be good for you. I mean that's, that's a ridiculous <laughs> way of looking at it but I like the fact that in, in this world where everyone is so negative about things you know it just balances out that argument a little bit. We don't live in the 80s and 90s anymore and huge advances in medical science mean that if you're HIV positive and on effective treatment you can actually suppress the virus to undetectable levels and avoid transmitting it to others. Undetectable means untransmittable. U equals U. It means that in the UK, 90% of people living with HIV are actually unable to pass it on. But obviously not everyone has access to treatment or knows how to protect themselves. And in 2018, 770,000 people worldwide died from HIV. A cure would save countless lives whilst also eliminating the need for daily treatments, which can take a huge physical and mental toll, not to mention the social stigma that HIV still carries. It would also mean, Dan, that you could shave again. Have a listen to this. Oh God, not this. <laughs> Give it a rest. It's not just transmitted by, by sex, is it? I mean, I'm going back to what I learned at school, but you can pick it up from razors and... Or can you not? Is that, is that a myth? I mean, it's, this is sexually transmitted. Mother to child is probably another way. Well, it, not probably. It is another way. But again, that is, should be entirely preventable. No HIV-positive mum or mum living with HIV should ever pass HIV onto her child now because it can be prevented by putting that mum on antiretroviral therapy. So we should be able to get, turn that to zero. And certainly in the UK, we, we would never... Ever expect a mum living with HIV to pass the infection on but generally speaking HIV is transmitted through sex you know that's it yeah. I mean some intravenous drug use absolutely not toilet seats razors all that sort of thing I mean that's and that once the virus is outside the body it doesn't last very long it's pretty fragile right okay um, so if I kind of you know put a drop of blood on the table here with a bit of HIV in it it wouldn't be that long before it wasn't infectious at all so that's interesting because I have been for like the last 20 years so paranoid about using someone else's 
razor. Well, there might be good it. reasons for that. There are other bugs on the skin, you know. There's, sure. There's things like Staphylococcus and yeah. other skin bugs that can cause infections and other bits and bobs. So there may be good health reasons why you might want to necessarily share razors, but um, HIV is not on your list. That was the only thing on my list, okay. actually. Well, I can add some things to your list, but um, I, I can certainly pick HIV off. <laughs> <laughs> is that um, why you haven't shaved? Because you've got a beard. No, I you've haven't. Got your own razor. I do have the fear as to why I don't use somebody else's razor, but yeah, yeah. The, as to why I have a beard, I just can't bother. So listening to that, Dan, John Freighter has told us about the Berlin patient and also the London patient. Who are they? So yeah, the Berlin patient, his real name is Timothy Ray Brown. He revealed his identity in 2010. And in March 2019, it was revealed that there's been a second person considered cured of HIV, the London patient. But he's chosen to remain anonymous. So can we reach out to him? Well, no, he's anonymous. Are you sure? Well, yeah, like he's anonymous for a reason. He doesn't want to be found. So we're not going to be able to find him. Right. I'm sorry to tell you. So, okay. So this isn't like Grindr where they don't have their photo up and their profile says anonymous, but they still want to chat to you and hit you up with nudes. No, he's fully anonymous. I don't know his name. And also it's completely unethical to go looking for him. So let's just put that one to bed. Next week on a gay and a non-gay. The London patient, the second person in the world to be cured of HIV, has today revealed their identity. I got Dan, the London patient, just emailed me and we're on. What? Really? Find us on your socials at Gay Non Gay. Listen at GayNonGay.com or just search Non Gay on your fave pod app. Thanks for listening to the podcast this week. This episode was supported by the Wellcome Trust and the British Podcast Awards Fund. Thanks so much to them. And our thanks also to the MTV Staying Alive Foundation and Liam at the Terence Higgins Trust.